This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Static in the South by Adam Warren Cheshire and Dickens' Untold Tale, The Unwilling Executioner by L.S. Basson. Static in the South, written by Adam Warren Cheshire, read by Dave Robinson. Listening time, eight minutes, five seconds. I don't know why we never really spoke. Our parents exchanged pleasantries from across the lawn, and it could have been that we were both out there at one time or another with our folks, and maybe there was a wave or some other gesture of obligatory recognition, but I don't remember. Though she was 13 and only two years younger than me, she had the cherubic face of a small child, with a bright spring of blonde hair coiled on the top of her head like a slinky. And there was a darkness around her eyes that gave her a curious intensity and made even the most mundane actions appear to hold a certain weight. I remember watching her from my window as she skipped rope in her driveway. I was certain she'd never stop, that the rope would rub away the cement beneath her feet, and that she'd fall into the earth, skipping all the way. It was her eyes, I think, the way she seemed to find a point in space and focus on it, as if her shadowy stare was wearied by the strength it took to hold this moment in place, as the rest of her was allowed to enjoy the freedoms of unencumbered youth. She frightened me in a way I couldn't explain then. Now I can do little better than to say it was a look of desperation, and that it scared me so because it was anachronistic, as if a soul battered, sliced, and bled out had accidentally inhabited her, and somewhere lived an old and haunted body who woke up every morning smiling upon the freshness of the day. The day I saw her in the tree had been normal enough. After school, I had run up to my room to snatch from my bedside table the latest Sandman I had been reading. I always walked in circles around the backyard as I read. I would do this until my mother whistled for dinner. I'd finish the rest of the night's reading in my room. The backyard kept me safe. Before that, I had strolled through the neighborhood, my head bent, immersed, stepping blindly through the streets. It wasn't so much the danger of falling through an uncovered manhole or being run over that had brought me to the solitude and scenic comfort of the yard, but the shouts from teenagers passing by in their cars, or even children from my own grade leaning out the back of their parents' minivans to call me whatever synonym for dork happened to be trendy at the time. I believe that particular year, fag was all the rage. The day was extremely bright, I remember, because a harsh glare would assault me if I happened to bend my book at a certain angle, the sun a blinding sheet across the black and dream-filled pages. This is why I had stopped, after a while, underneath the large pine at the back edge of our property that stood between our yard and a trash-ridden bog generously referred to as the creek. The forensic report said 414. That seems about right. That would have been around the same time that I heard her footsteps on the branches above me, testing their strength, bouncing delicately upon them when I first looked up. She didn't acknowledge me down below, if she saw me at all. She wore a bright yellow dress, almost as luminescent as her hair, which poured across her shoulders in thin braided rivulets. The tree's branches were sturdy and set apart enough that she could make her way easily up, down, and around the thick trunk. Her face showed uncertainty at first, but with each revolution she seemed to gain confidence until she was nearly running through the labyrinth of branches, a grin spread wide underneath her eyes, which were now, I noticed, unburdened of their hard, bruised gaze, 
and seemed to shine with the rest of her. After a while, I don't know how long, entranced and enchanted as I was by her frolicking on high, she stopped and took a seat at the edge of a branch hanging right above me. She swung her legs back and forth like an antsy toddler and stared out toward the creek. We waited. I never once thought of calling to her. I think I knew somewhere inside me that she would not have answered, that she was beyond me somehow, in another realm of existence that no shouting could break through, no desire penetrate. But I could hear her, the lightness of her breath, the scratch of her dress against the limb as she sat there staring out at the dirty water of the creek, no longer staring as she had in the past with that fixed, inviolable gaze, but as if she were watching for something, urging something into being. And so she did, as the boy's shout seemed to come from the heavens. Up here! It startled us both, and turning upward toward the tip of the great tree, we saw him come bolting down the limbs like a nimble adolescent god. This is the part of the story people have always found the most to complain about. Beyond the mere disbelief in their eyes, I'm often attacked for my insensitivity toward the families of both children, though even the most skeptical person has to realize that at the time I had no knowledge of the drowned boy, which would be even further proof of my veracity. Yet, even as a boy, I incited fury in others and was many times led to tears by their harsh words. It always begins when I describe what the boy was wearing. Faded and frayed jean shorts, dark blue t-shirt, no shoes. There's a curious look of frustration on their faces at first, but when I mention his feet, how they were bare and wrinkled to a ghastly degree, like melted putty, that's when they usually lose it. You little twerp! One old man had shouted at me not long after the incident when I was telling the story to one of the many curious tourists who began to pop up in the following months. I went to school with him, boy. How dare you bring him into your trash tale? He had spat at me and was about to wring my neck, I feel sure of it, if the tourists had not intervened and run him off. He had drowned in the creek at the beginning of the century, I was told later. He had been an antsy child, they say, and known to be wandering the woods when he should have been in school. There had been a huge controversy after he drowned about the question of whether or not he actually drowned, considering what a capable rural child he had been, never one to miss a swimming hole adventure, and definitely not the type of kid to slip and fall in a tiny creek and drown. Only a few at the time were brave enough to bring up in front of the family the impossibility of all those rocks found piled in his pockets being the result of the creek's near non-existent current. If I had known then about the drowned boy, I might have asked him what really happened. Most likely not. Instead, I watched him descend and land with his putty feet on her branch. She had not had time to make one move before he bent to her shoulder and tapped it playfully with his thin, wet fingers. Tag! You're it! He took off, rising and rising. She paused for a moment and crinkled her brow as she watched him twirl around the tree. Then she released a tremendous squeal and rose from the branch. She hopped back and forth for an instant before picking her out. And off she went, her feet more sure now, ethereal, as they chased one another, giggling and unperturbed by the earth below. It was then that I was torn from my trance by the sound of sirens. Though they let its wail of urgency continue through the streets, they must have known that she was beyond help. Her mother had screamed it into the phone how she was just hanging there in the middle of her room. The jump rope wrapped so tightly the paramedics had to cut her down and take her from the house like that, 
dangling twine dragging the driveway on the way to the ambulance, as if it were trying to pull her lifeless body to the ground, keep her there. When I looked up again, they were gone, off to play together, eternally youthful and forever away from me. I was alone, with nothing but my book. End. Adam is a writer living in Hillsboro, North Carolina. Dickens' Untold Tale, The Unwilling Executioner. Written by L.S. Basson. Read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 16 minutes. Author's Note. From the prize-winning 2009 Atlantic Pacific Press, Massachusetts play, The End of Shakespeare and Company, comes this monologue by Charles Dickens, performing in the NYC Westside Bookstore in 1996. Made possible by imagined vagaries of space-time, explained in the comic drama. Therefore, any anomalous conflicts of chronology, as Dickens would say, should be understood to exist only in the listener's mind. Dickens' Untold Tale The Unwilling Executioner Charles Dickens stands behind his reading table. A large poster billboard stands on an easel on the stage, announcing Dickens's reading of The Unwilling Executioner. He carefully examines the articles on his desk. The pamphlet that contains the story, a pointer, a small vase with one blue flower, a shiny pistol, a pitcher of water and a glass. He then examines his attire for flair and neatness. A dark Victorian suit is transformed into costume by his shiny orange vest and elaborate bowed tie around the raised collar. Dickens smooths his beard and hair. He looks in his early fifties, with huge, justified celebrity ego, but also an actor's pre-performance excitement. This man loves an audience, and they always adore him. Dickens speaks to his American audience. His British accent seduces them. Illustrious and wonderfully illustrated guests, welcome. Here I am and delighted to be encountering you on this, my third visit to the New World. I offer you this evening a small tale about a small man, the unwilling executioner. Dickens turns, pockets the pistol, takes the pamphlet and pointer from the table, reading, but also reciting from memory, which he indicates by ticking off with his pointer imaginary spokes of a wheel in the air. At the same time as the American gold rush, when in one year, 1849, 300,000 of my countrymen escaped epidemic of cholera, only to be infected with the equally mortal gold fever. There were many locations upon our then still rustic globe, despite the quickening encroachments of railway and telegraph, where the ancient and barbarous art of the public executioner was very much a necessity of civilized life. Of this occupation, there were not as many practitioners as the vagaries of vice called forth, and of these there was one, Frederick Hurdle by name, whose early employment had been as a maker of ladies' shoes and a private watchman at a London brewery. But Mr. Hurdle found that fitting noose to neck, rather than shoe to foot, better accommodated his over-large hands. And as for the brewery, his employer there concluded that he would need a watchman to watch the watchman if Hurdle remained, given the small man's greater interest in the legitimate contents of the barrels, 
than in any illegality intended against his offices from without. In short, in Hurdle's earliest years, he was a man clumsy enough to trip on lint, and quite likely to from inebriation. With this reputation and the minor influence of a great aunt who had been at school with the sheriff's sister, Frederick Hurdle was called to his vocation as assistant and then chief executioner of the City of London and Middlesex. He was further recommended to this distinguished appointment by way of his shunning the technological advances of modern hanging in favor of the antique short drop, an inclination to conserve the past, being then as now the preference of those in the position of assignment of plum appointments. Hurdle's clients fell only a few feet after the trap beneath their feet opened, and often were violently convulsed for several minutes before they died. For all that, Frederick Hurdle was not a hard-hearted man. When asked, he liked to say, he came from a mother's heart and the back of my father's hand. He liked to smoke a pipe, and he enjoyed his pints of beer. He was at his happiest in his apiary, amidst the humming industry of his bees, and he equally enjoyed the breeding of pigeons and rabbits, as those occupations required neither his effort nor his encouragement. Moreover, these creatures stood ample evidence that nature herself expected of Mr. Hurdle no more than the exploitation of their eager proclivity towards such endeavors. In the manner of honey on his muffins, and pigeon pie or rabbit stew on his plate. Thus, Frederick Hurdle was truly a man of the empire, and a loving husband and father. If he were seen leaving his home in the dark before dawn, or after dark in the evening to avoid recognition, it was as much to spare embarrassment to his angel in the household, his wife, and his heirs, executioners to be, if sinecure and the empire should prevail, as it was to avoid the public eye on himself, that he moved around in such a slinking manner. In fact, it was said of Frederick Hurdle, after his forty-five-year tenure as executioner for the city of London and Middlesex, a record among English executioners, that he was a man who had shown on more than one occasion that his dread of facing the crowd was equal to his victim's dread of facing the gallows. Calculate that Hurdle assumed his lofty position in the year 1829 and continued to 1874, with reasonable allowances being made for the cumbersome necessities of growing from infancy through childhood to his earliest manhood, he must have culminated his career in his sixth or more likely his seventh decade of life, an accomplishment of three score and ten before retirement that other men must admire and envy. The usual scene of Mr. Hurdle's craft was Newgate Prison in London, but for the special execution of the husband and wife murderers known as the Hermans, the condemned were to be hanged at the Horsemonger Lane Jail in Southwark, barely a half-mile from the scene of the crime for which they so richly deserved their fate. Dickens pauses and then speaks as if in a private aside to each individual in the audience. Yvette Herman, an alien married to an Englishman, impressed the court that tried her for her excellent continental accent, evidencing the familiar English amazement that the French, or, as, as in this case, the Swiss, should be able to speak their own native tongue. Mrs. Herman, a venerable Lady Macbeth in black satin, truly captured the morbid imagination of a generation of old and young ladies, and attracted a different sort of admiration altogether from men high and low, who found her voice raised in anger, thrilling. Dickens alters his pitch and accent, speaking in Mrs. Herman's voice. You do not call any witnesses for me. He stops, pours water into the glass, and drinks. He then moves from behind the podium desk and walks to the edge of the stage, 
his baritone smooth and electric. And the thought of her fills their hearts with hot blood as she walks apace behind her old lover, Thomas O'Grady, following him down the stairs into her kitchen, where he was to wash his hands for his unimagined last supper. Yvette Herman lifts the pistol, which was never found by the police. And after removing the pistol from his jacket pocket, Dickens fires with a loud bang. He waits for the gasps to quiet before. She shoots O'Grady in the back of the head. Her cowardly husband waits upstairs, and then, the deed done, follows his far more ambitious wife to the bottom of the steps. At the trial, Mr. Herman says, Dickens uses another voice, On the fatal day, after my wife had shot O'Grady, I went downstairs and he was moaning. I never liked him much, and I beat in his skull with the ripping chisel. I have no more to say. Dickens waits while the audience growls at the villain. He raises one hand. The escape and capture of the Hermans, who went off in opposite directions after the murder, Yvette to Edinburgh and her husband to Jersey off the southern English coast, was a miracle of modern technology. Without the railway, they never would have been able to get away so quickly. But without the telegraph, the recognition and apprehension of the murderous couple could not have been accomplished. Dickens pauses for another intimate aside. The world is considerably indebted to an American for putting electricity to work in the exercise of the telegraph. Joseph Henry, a native of Albany, New York, who was largely responsible for the founding of the United States Weather Bureau, discovered the induction of electricity at about the same time as the Englishman Michael Faraday. But Joseph Henry's name is not known because Faraday published first, and, of course, he was an Englishman. The American Henry's first application of electricity was the invention of telegraphy, devising a system of relays which makes it possible to transmit an electric current over miles of wire. No less than the Illustrated London News opined that the benefits conferred by this science were exemplified in the capture of the Hermans, and Punch carried a cartoon showing a fleeing criminal ensnared by telegraph wires at the end of a line of telegraph poles, captioned, Swift and Sure. Dickens slowly moves back behind the desk, pouring more water and drinking. He speaks as if revived. The obvious guilt of the murderous pair notwithstanding, the chief executioner, Frederick Hurdle, objected to playing his part in the hanging of a wife with her husband. Hurdle knew and believed the executioner's credo, Never hang the wrong man. Never fail to hang the right one. Never hang yourself. Hurdle believed that a wife was under the control of her husband, and not being a free agent should not suffer with him. That a man capable of such a belief about the state of marriage should have within his hands reached the power of the state must in some mysterious way have contributed to the manifesto at the very t time being composed by Mr. Marx and Mr. Ingalls in approximate London neighborhood. The sheriffs of London and Middlesex were unhappy to hear of Hurdle's objections. In his absence, one of them would have to play the hagman's role. But Hurdle saw that there was no shortage of replacements, especially one ambitious broccoli monger from Covent Garden, who insisted he was the man for the job because Marists are the strong from the binding of bunches. This industrious vegetarian, presumably imagining that the work was to be done by hand rather than by rope. Then Hurdle reluctantly agreed to mount the scaffold and dispatch the Hermans according to the law. On the appointed day, a Tuesday, in cold November, at nine o'clock in the morning, the street and roofs in front of the prison were transformed into a stage with an audience of more than 30,000. In the crowd was a great convocation of humanity, 
a representative body of the offspring of our first parents of the fall, and a veritable jungle of the animals, the horses and the dogs and cats and rats, that they had given names in the fatal garden. There were the high and the mighty watching from rooftops, affordable at prices risen through sale and resale, smoking cigars and drinking champagne. In honor of the American gold rush, they were called Californian prices. There were scaffolds quickly erected around house fronts, children were hoisted aloft their parents' shoulders, ragged boys climbed up posts, pickpockets lifted what little there was in the grimy clothes of their distracted victims, and altogether there was such mayhem, noise, and stink that it could be a tableau vivant of the deserved end of the corrupt world. Onto the roof of the prison, as onto the stage, walked the bound objects of ridicule and fascination, the Hermans, Om et Femme. The crowd took up the cry of the day, a parody of the popular Stephen Foster tune. Dickens sings to O Susanna, Oh, Mrs. Herman, oh, don't you cry for me, and acknowledges a scattering applause with a short bow. The executioner, Frederick Hurdle, came forward, waving away the last puffs of possibly infernal smoke that remained from a fire that had broken out only a half hour before from the back of the jail. The tolling of the prison bell accompanied his movements, which Dickens enacts, as he placed a white nightcap on the husband's head, then another onto Yvette Herman's already handkerchiefed and veiled visage, and then the noose around her neck. Mind you, do your work well, ordered the imperious woman in black satin. The minister present approached Yvette Herman and pled with her again to repent, and when she refused, he asked her if she had anything at all to say to him. Dickens speaks again in Yvette's accent. Nothing but to thank you much for all your kindness. He repeats. Nothing but to thank you much for all your kindness. And she, and an instant later, Mr. Hurdle did his duty, withdrew the bolt, and the drop of the scaffold fell. The audience breathes, and Dickens nods as if they were there. Never for a moment did a hush fall upon the crowd, but instead an increased roar went up that would deafen the trump of doom. It never ceased, but went on like an ocean at war with itself, black wave against wave, a furious foam of white cloths tossed upward, falling back down, lost in the roiling masses, crushing as it moved. In the flood was a young woman named Catherine Reed, who fell down in a faint and was trodden by the mob. She was taken to Guy's Hospital with terrible injuries and died the next day. A man who had placed a leg between some iron railings to resist the press of the crowd had that leg fractured and then torn from his body when the mass swayed, and he too died soon after, unknown and ignored by his executioners. Women in the audience were crying. Dickens pours more water and drinks. He presses on to the end. After the jerking of the body settled into the pendulum of sway, regular as a clock, as the sails of a mill driven by the wind that one sees in the low countries, as the heartbeats that never again would throb inside the chests of those he had just dispatched, Frederick Hurdle also could not catch his own breath. One of the turnkeys, seeing his comrade lost his usual ruddy color, took hold of Hurdle's arms and said, "'There, there now,' and escorted him downstairs into the prison yard, where they walked back and forth for nearly half an hour. Only then did Hurdle sufficiently recover to return to the roof and aid his associates in taking down the Hermans' bodies and to remove the ropes from around their necks.
With help, Hurdle carried Yvette's body to an upper room in the lobby on the prison roof, and he watched the disrobing and cutting of her hair. When he left the jail that day, Hurdle exclaimed that he did not much like hanging a man and his wife. Dickens lowers and softens his voice. In his latter days, he was reported to have undergone a religious conversion, and he was seen with Mrs. Hurdle in regular Sunday attendance at church. He even gave up his trade in the sale of victims' clothing and the bits of rope he hanged them with. Dickens bows. The applause is deafening. The End Ellis Basson won the 2009 Atlantic Pacific Press Drama Prize. Currently, three of her novels are serialized at troubadour21.com and friedfiction.com. She also reads for electricliterature.com. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>